Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today, inspired by a message sent in by a listener, we're going to cover the history of blood transfusion. Now, we have touched on this subject in a previous episode, number 37 to be specific, where we met Dr. Charles Drew, who was involved in setting up blood banks during World War II and became the director of the first American Red Cross blood bank in 1941, a position he resigned from after the Army refused to end their segregation of blood donated from African Americans. It's an interesting story, so if you haven't already, go have a listen. But not right now. You'll want to stay for this one, as it goes much further back to the origins of our understanding of blood, right back to the humoral theory of Hippocrates and Galen, on to William Harvey and the discovery of the circulation system, to the first attempted xenotransfusion, up to the point of the first human-to-human blood transfusion. Now that's a lot to cover, so let's get our blood pumping for this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin with some fun facts about blood. First, blood is red because it contains red blood cells, and red blood cells are red because they contain hemoglobin, which itself is made up of heme, an organic ring-shaped molecule which binds iron. It's the iron that gives blood its red color, specifically the bond between iron and oxygen. This is the same reason rust is red. It's formed from the interaction of iron and oxygen. This is also why Mars appears red. Its soil has a high iron oxide content. And since we're now talking about outer space, let's talk about the origin of iron itself. Unlike hydrogen and helium, which were formed at the time of the Big Bang, the heavier elements required some nuclear fusion. This happens in the hearts of stars, but once a star has formed an iron core, it can no longer generate energy by fusion. The core begins to condense due to gravity, becoming ever denser and hotter, and the iron atoms are so squeezed together that their nuclear repulsive forces cause a massive explosion, known as a supernova, with the force of an octillion atomic bombs spreading its elements throughout the universe. More than half of the elements are produced this way, but let me quote the famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan as he put it in more poetic terms. Quote, The nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. End quote. So that's why blood is red. But is it ever blue? Many people assume that deoxygenated blood is blue, but it is actually simply a darker red. So where did this idea come from? Now, interestingly, this is related to the reason European nobility were called blue bloods. The Spanish actually originated the term sangre azul to identify families that had never intermarried the darker-skinned Moors, which is the European term for the peoples from the Middle East that conquered parts of Europe during the Middle Ages. The lighter-skinned Spanish would have veins that look blue, giving the idea that their blood actually was blue. We now know, of course, that the blue appearance of veins is an optical illusion. Quick physics note. Blue light does not penetrate as far into tissue as red light, and so if the vessel is sufficiently deep, your eyes see more blue than red reflected light due to the blood's partial absorption of red wavelengths. However, that doesn't mean that blue blood doesn't exist. Some animals have hemocyanin instead of hemoglobin, which uses a copper atom instead of iron to carry oxygen, giving their blood a blue color. These include some spiders and scorpions, crabs, crayfish, lobster, shrimp, and possibly most famously, horseshoe crabs. This last group have their blood harvested for medical purposes. 
Check out episode 53 on creepy crawlers and surgery for more details. Okay, let's get back to human blood. Specifically, we'll take an historical look at the understanding of the contents, purpose, and movement of blood in the human body. Our first thorough description comes to us from Galen. Now, I'm sure by now most regular listeners have heard of this famous Greek physician who lived in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century CE. And like most things in medicine, his concepts were not created in a vacuum of knowledge, but rather built upon the ideas of the Greek physicians prior to Galen's day. Now, we're not going to go into too much detail as, spoiler alert, I'm going to cover Galen for the show's 100th episode. But we'll get the basics. According to what became known as the Galenic system, blood is created in the liver from ingested food and then distributed in veins throughout the body to restore the tissues that are gradually lost. And that's an important concept. Blood does not circulate, but rather is consumed at its destination. In addition to blood, veins also contain other humors, including yellow and black bile. A quick humor refresher. The four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water, embody the four primary irreducible qualities, the hot, cold, dry, and wet. These correspond to the four humors of the body, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. The humors take their origin from the elements found in food, and that's really what this boils down to, the understanding of physiology through the lens of nutrition. So what happens to this blood that has been created by the liver from consumed food? So part of the venous blood was diverted to the heart, where some would continue on to the lungs to give off so-called sooty vapors, which helps explain why we breathe. Some would mix with the pneuma brought in by the trachea, to the left ventricle to form arterial blood imbued with vital spirits. Again, an important concept to remember later. As the existence of capillaries was not known, which is fair as they are microscopic, there was really no way to directly observe a connection between the arteries and the veins. In fact, the theory was that blood moved across the interventricular septum from the right side to the left through invisible pores. A little bit of blood also went to a structure in the base of the brain called the rete mirabla, which translates to wonderful net, where the vital spirits are changed to animal spirits before being distributed to the rest of the body through hollow tubes called nerves. And by the way, the rete mirabla corresponds to an actual anatomical structure made of arteries and veins, which is found in a number of animals, but not in humans. However, as human dissection was forbidden, Galen would not necessarily be aware of this. Right. Confused yet? Here are the key ideas. The functions of the liver, veins, and right heart were to deliver the products of a healthy diet to the various parts of the body, while the functions of the lungs, left heart, and arteries were to deliver heat, life, and motion through vital spirits. The humors, spirits, and heat ebbed and flowed around the body according to the needs of the tissues. Disease was attributed to an imbalance of humors or a shift in the patterns of flow within the body. Treatment was directed at restoring the balance or controlling the movement of fluids. And this is why bloodletting was such a common remedy, as the theory was to rebalance the humors, particularly blood, at the site of concern, by removing the excess. However, if blood is conserved and not regularly created anew by the liver, then the logic for bleeding patients falls apart. Okay. So let's return to the history of our understanding of the circulatory system. In Europe, Galen's concepts ruled for centuries, but eventually it could no longer stand up to the scrutiny of science and anatomical knowledge. 
The first to challenge Galen's findings was an Arab physician, Ibn al-Nafis, in the 1200s. He lived in Damascus, Syria during the Islamic Golden Age, and unlike his European counterparts, Ibn al-Nafis was able to perform human dissections. He stated that there are no invisible passages from the right side to the left side of the heart and correctly traced the pulmonary circulation. Unfortunately, Nafis's writings were largely ignored until the 20th century, even in the Arab world. A human dissection began in the late 13th century at the University of Bologna, but the objective was to demonstrate Galen's works rather than to investigate and gain new knowledge and insight. This began to change with some of the Renaissance-era physicians, including Vesalius from episode 81, Servetus, Rialdo Colombo, a.k.a. Columbus, Fabricius, and others, who began to poke holes in Galenic dogma. But it would eventually be an English physician who would publish his theory of circulation in a 72-page book in 1628 that would change our understanding of the circulatory system forever. Born in Kent, England in 1578, William Harvey studied medicine in Padua, Italy, at the time considered the greatest medical school in the Western world. Returning to England in 1602, Harvey was appointed assistant physician at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, eventually becoming a lecturer at the Royal College of Physicians. So how did Harvey come to his conclusion that blood circulated through the body, pumped by the heart? Part of it was a simple thought experiment, which seems obvious enough to us, but as it challenged everything he had been taught, it is impressive nonetheless. Consider blood volume. Harvey knew that the left ventricle could hold about two ounces of blood. Now, assuming that some fraction of that blood is pumped out of the heart with each beat in what we now call ejection fraction, which is between 50 and 70% of the volume of blood, but in which Harvey grossly underestimated, and we know the number of beats per minute by counting the pulse, we can estimate the cardiac output over a certain period of time. Harvey did this and realized that the liver would have to create several times the body weight in blood every day if the blood was actually being consumed. So, unless you are a hummingbird, which eats twice its body weight in nectar each day, or the American pygmy shrew, three times their body weight, or even a jungle leech, which can eat up to seven times its body weight in a single meal, then chances are that you can't keep up with that level of demand. Harvey's conclusion was that, quote, it is a matter of necessity that the blood perform a circuit, that it return from whence it set out, end quote. Harvey published his seminal work, which I alluded to before, in Latin, and it had the title Exercitatio Anatomica du Matu Cordis et Sanguinis in Animalibus, which translates to Anatomical Exercises on the Motion of the Heart and Blood in Animals. Now, one interesting fact about the book. In it, Harvey, knowing that he was challenging long-held beliefs, anticipated the opposition he would face, writing, quote, Not only do I fear danger to myself from the malice of a few, but I dread lest I have all men as enemies, end quote. And sadly, he was not too far off in his assessment. In later life, he became a bit of a recluse and wrote, quote, Much better is it oftentimes to grow wise at home and in private, than by publishing what you have amassed with infinite labor to stir up tempests that may rob you of peace and quiet for the rest of your days, end quote. Now, regardless of its reception, Harvey's work would eventually break Galen's stranglehold over cardiovascular physiology, creating the groundwork upon which all of medicine now stands upon. 
Okay, so we've talked about how blood moves around the body, and we've touched on some of the ancient ideas of the function of blood, so let's pick up that thread. The idea that blood contained a vital force unto itself has been around a long time, as we've seen. In fact, ancient kings of Egypt were thought to have bathed in blood, believing this could, quote, resuscitate the sick and rejuvenate the old and incapacitated, end quote. Certainly it was not lost on our ancient ancestors that the loss of blood led to a reduction in vitality, or to put it in more modern terms, hemorrhagic, aka hypovolemic shock. So it stands to reason that adding blood would increase one's vitality. In fact, the consumption of blood to restore vitality has a long and sometimes questionable history. One of the great historians of the Roman Empire, Pliny the Elder, who lived from 23 to 79 CE, described the mad rush of spectators into arenas to drink the blood of fallen gladiators, thinking it a magical elixir which would transfer their qualities like strength and bravery to the recipient. In fact, this practice got so out of hand that Emperor Septimus Severus prohibited it in 193 CE. And our old friend Galen even had some advice on this, suggesting that drinking the blood of a weasel or a dog was a cure for rabies. In the 15th century, Marsilio Vicino, an Italian scholar and Catholic priest, promoted drinking young blood as a means for the elderly to regain their youthful vigor. In medieval times, there are stories of people drinking the blood of executed criminals. Some sources even mention rumors of rich and powerful men trying this. One story involves Pope Innocent VIII. Sources report that the Pope, in 1492, had an illness that rendered him semi-comatose, and a physician named Abraham Meyer transfused him with the blood of three boys. Now this is almost certainly a mistranslation, and it's thought that the Pope actually drank their blood, and the three boys, who by the way cost one ducat apiece, actually died, as did the Pope sometime later. Of course, this idea of drinking the blood of the young to extend life, other than being the basis of vampire lore, has some dark repercussions in the real world. The idea of a blood libel, an anti-Semitic belief that Jews ritually sacrifice Christian children at Passover for use in making matzo, or unleavened bread, has been used as an excuse to persecute Jews in European countries beginning the 12th century CE and was even used in Nazi propaganda. And sadly, these kind of accusations remain to this day. QAnon is a bizarre belief that has gained in popularity, which holds that Satanic global elites torture children to harvest the chemical adrenochrome from their blood, which they inject to stay young and healthy. It is essentially a permutation of the blood libel for the modern age. But like so many conspiracy theories, there is a grain of truth which has been twisted and misunderstood. Adrenochrome, and this was a surprise to me, is actually a real chemical. It is simply the oxidized version of adrenaline which explains the torture part need to elicit that fight-or-flight response to get those adrenal glands pumping it out. A few small studies in the 50s and 60s showed that adrenochrome triggered some psychotic reactions, and it was thought that adrenochrome might play a role in schizophrenia and other mental illnesses. This led to a hypothesis that large doses of antioxidants, specifically vitamin C and niacin, could cure psychosis. But this megadose vitamin theory failed to show any benefit in schizophrenia, and this avenue of research was abandoned. Anyways, clearly the idea that blood holds some essence of youthful vigor dates back to the ancient Greeks and the vital spirits that were part of the humoral theory of medicine, which continued for centuries thanks to the dominance of Galen's work 
a belief which still exists in some perverted form today. In fact, some companies have even attempted to commercialize this, offering transfusions of plasma from young donors into older recipients to provide some kind of benefit, although none has ever been shown. And the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, in 2019, cautioned consumers against receiving young donor plasma infusions, stating that they are an unproven treatment. So now let's talk about the actual transfusion of blood into the human circulatory system. As we know from episode 95, Non Per Os, The Tale of TPN, Christopher Wren demonstrated that it was possible to give patients nutrients intravenously in the year 1656. It is perhaps not surprising then that experiments with providing blood intravenously soon followed. In fact, the idea is thought to have been first suggested in July 1658 by a French monk named Dom Robert de Gabet, describing it this way, quote, By the transfer of blood, I mean the actual passage of blood from a man or from another animal into the veins of a weak or sick man, end quote. The idea of using animal blood, or xenotransfusion, was actually the first method attempted. In the 17th century, it was still believed that the heart was the source of emotion and the soul, and that blood was its messenger. It then stands to reason that transfusing animal blood into a person would bring the spirit of the animal, particularly youthful vigor, into the patient. A young French doctor named Jean-Baptiste Denis, who was also a physician to King Louis XIV, performed the first documented transfusion of blood from an animal to a man. Initially experimenting with transfusing blood between two dogs, and then transfusing blood from three calves into three dogs, he demonstrated that it was at least feasible. Then he seemed to actually favor the idea of using animal blood, stating, quote, Great advantages will follow upon the mixture of different bloods, end quote, and, quote, The blood of animals is less full of impurities than that of men, because debauchery and irregularity in eating and drinking are not so common in them as in us, end quote. So Denis proceeded, and on June 15, 1667, in Paris, he carried out a transfusion in a 15-year-old male patient suffering from a violent fever. The poor patient had already been bled 20 times. Denis, assisted by surgeon Paul Emerez, opened a vein in the patient's inner elbow and allowed the blood to drain into a dish, removing about 3 ounces, or 90 mils. They then took blood from the carotid artery of a lamb and introduced it into the patient's vein, approximately three times the volume they had removed. The patient described a strong heat moving through his arm and was soon able to eat normally and felt calm and jovial. Denis then did a second transfusion of lamb's blood into a healthy 45-year-old man who was paid for his participation. And while there were no advantageous effects, there were no negative reactions, encouraging Denis to experiment further. A third attempt was made on a young Swedish nobleman who had fallen ill while in Paris. This time, Denis used calf's blood, and while the patient initially showed signs of recovery, he died shortly afterwards. This unfortunate result did not deter Denis, but it was his fourth and final case that would end up getting transfusions prohibited for well over a hundred years, which in retrospect was probably a good thing. However, the story has a surprise twist that I think you'll enjoy, so let's get into it. Antoine Moroy was a 34-year-old Parisian who was described as deranged and had been running naked through the streets of the City of Love day and night for four months. His mental illness dated back eight years and, as what was presumably standard treatment at the time, 
He had been bled 18 separate times with unsurprisingly minimal results. Denis first transfused him with five or six ounces of calf's blood on December 19, 1667, and a second time two days later, this time with more than a pound of calf's blood. Mr. Moroy complained of heat running through his arm and strong pain in his kidneys. Over the next few days, his urine turned black, quote, as if it had been mixed with the soot of chimneys, end quote. Likely the first ever report of a post-transfusional acute hemolytic reaction. For two months, Mr. Moroy remained healthy, but then fell ill again. His wife urged Denny to carry out a third transfusion, which Denny refused because her husband was not in a suitable condition for the procedure. However, Mrs. Moroy begged him, and Denny finally gave in. This little detail will be important later. He inserted a tube into a vein in Mr. Moroy's foot to draw off old blood. Why that was part of the procedure, I do not know. But before Denis could transfuse him with blood, the patient suffered violent seizures and died the next day. As we've seen countless times, the medical establishment was not supportive of a new therapy, and Denis' detractors used this death to shut him down by convincing the wife of Mr. Moroy to sue him. The verdict was delivered on April 17, 1668, where Denis was found innocent. And here's the twist. During the court case, it was revealed that Mrs. Moroy had been poisoning her husband with arsenic. <gasps> However, the court decided that, quote, for the future, no transfusion should be made upon any human body except with the approbation of the physicians of the Parisian faculty, end quote. On January 10, 1670, the French Parliament prohibited transfusions, with the English Royal Society soon following suit, and the Pope announced a ban on the procedure in 1679. These bans lasted until the 19th century. Let me quote historian N.S.R. Malouf on this topic, as I think it sums it up well. Quote, it is probably fortunate that blood transfusion took a nap for over one and a half centuries. Ignorance of antisepsis, asepsis, and immunology, all 19th century discoveries, would have resulted in countless disasters, end quote. Too true. Before we move on, let's wrap up xenotransfusion. While experiments using animal blood did occur in later years, and even the milk from cows, goats, and humans would be transfused into patients, including in the U.S. in the later half of the 19th century, the practice obviously stopped with increasing understanding of immunology. But as they say, everything old is new again. Efforts are being made to develop transgenic pigs, lacking antigens that the human body would attack, providing an essentially unlimited supply of blood on demand, which would also reduce the risk of transmitting human diseases. Amazing. Well, now we have finally arrived at the first human-to-human transfusion and possibly a name you may have heard before, British obstetrician James Blundell. Born on December 27, 1790, to a wealthy London family with strong connections to the medical profession, Blundell began medical training in England, but was sent to Edinburgh at age 20 to complete his training. It was there that he met John Henry Leacock, another young doctor in training, but from the island of Barbados in the Caribbean, as his ancestors had settled there in the 1630s. It was actually Leacock that first had an interest in transfusion, using a six-inch length of cow ureter, with the quills of crow feathers tied on each end to act as needles for his animal transfusion experiments. He performed nine transfusion experiments, connecting the donor artery to the recipient vein, and published his results as part of his dissertation. 
Now, interestingly, Leacock was one of the first to grasp the idea of blood transfusion as a therapy for both hemorrhage and severe anemia, the importance of same-species transfusion, and the need to transfer blood before coagulation occurred. Clearly, these principles influenced Blundell, as he would later write in reference to his own work that, quote, These experiments acquire additional strength when associated with others instituted by Dr. Leacock a few months before, experiments to which I was wholly indebted for my first notions upon this subject, end quote. Sadly, Leacock returned to Barbados following his training and died just 10 years later in 1828. But back to Blundell. Following his time in Edinburgh, he returned to London in 1813 to work with his uncle, Dr. John Hayton, a surgeon at Guy's in St. Thomas's Hospital, whose career focused on physiology and midwifery. By 1818, Blundell published his earliest experiments with transfusion in dogs. To do this, he actually had a device made which consisted of a funnel to receive donor blood connected to a vertical plunger-type syringe. This work led Blundell to a few important conclusions. He wrote, quote, To obviate the fatality of hemorrhage, it is not necessary to inject as much blood as been lost, end quote. The act of passing blood through his syringe device did not, quote, unfit the blood for the purposes of life, end quote. That blood should be transfused immediately, in an era without preservatives or anticoagulants, and that blood transfused between different species did not work as well as same-species transfusion. Now we've set the stage for the main event. Oddly enough, given Blundell's practice was primarily in obstetrics, the first recipient of human-to-human transfusion was a man named Brazier. He was suffering from what, in retrospect, was likely an obstructing gastric cancer leading to persistent vomiting and dehydration. On September 26 of 1818, Blundell was called to attend to him, and, as he was, quote, at the point of death, end quote, the good doctor decided it was worth an attempt. And he had a rather practical view of the experiment, saying, quote, even if the operation should fail, it would probably disclose facts which might be of advantage to others, end quote. And so Blundell, assisted by the older and accomplished surgeon Henry Klein, and witnessed by numerous other doctors, bled the donor into a cup, from which the blood was drawn up into a syringe. The transfusion was given in the patient's cephalic vein of the arm, providing approximately 30 to 45 milliliters per injection, 10 times over 30 to 40 minutes, for a total transfusion volume of 400 mils. For comparison's sake, this is a little under one unit or bag of blood today. While there were no signs, good or bad, immediately following transfusion, some four to six hours later, Blundell reported that the patient's body became warmer, his skin more pink, and his pulse twice as strong in volume. The following day, Brazier drank a half pint of porter ale and had stated that he felt less fainty, but soon thereafter took a turn for the worse and died some 56 hours after the transfusion. However, this did not deter Blundell, nor did the deaths of the next five patients upon whom he attempted transfusion over the following seven years. In 1825, he finally found success, working with two young obstetricians named Charles Waller and Edward Doubleday, transfusing four women suffering from obstetrical hemorrhage, or more simply, major blood loss during or after delivery. While there are extensive clinical details for each one, this episode is running a bit long, so let's just quickly cover one. On August 8, 1825, a patient at the London and Southwark Midwifery Institution 
had just given birth to her first child, only to have a profuse gush of blood following delivery of the placenta. When Waller arrived to see her, the patient was, quote, to all external appearance, dead. She was lying on her back completely blanched, her face pale as the sheet that covered her. There was not the slightest tinge of redness on the lips, her hands and feet cold. The power of deglutition, which is swallowing, suspended, and there was no apparent respiration. On placing my finger upon the wrist, I could just discover the pulsation of the artery with, however, occasional intermissions, end quote. I think we can all agree what's being described here as hemorrhagic shock. For an hour and a half, Waller attempted the resuscitation methods of the time, which included the utterly useless smearing of brandy upon the lips. Waller then called for Blundell, fully expecting the patient to be deceased before he could arrive. Surprisingly, when Blundell did turn up, the patient still had a pulse, so he decided to observe her for three more hours. Finally, the doctors decided to attempt transfusion, and using her husband as the donor, provided 120 mils of blood. Not a huge amount, but the pulse improved from 120 to 110, and then six hours later to 100, with the patient being more alert. While this may have been due to the transfusion, even Waller at the time acknowledged that it could not be proven that this was the cause of her recovery. Amazingly, over his entire career, Blundell is thought to have attempted transfusion only a few more times, with his only successes the four women described above and one boy in shock after amputation of the leg. However, his younger colleagues Waller and Doubleday continued on his successes, and a few additional scientific breakthroughs would bring blood transfusion into the 20th century and widespread use, saving countless lives. Blundell himself even seemed to realize the potential for blood transfusion, stating, quote, The fact that life may be saved by the transfusion of blood into the veins will be beneficial a thousand years hence as it is on this day, end quote. Well, just over 200 years later, his words remain true. Now to wrap this up, I would be remiss in not mentioning two important discoveries that would launch blood transfusions into the 20th century. That is, the identification of blood groups and the ability to preserve blood, allowing for the development of blood banks. As I'm sure you are familiar, the main blood groups are A, B, and O, which represent different molecules on the surface of red blood cells. Prior to their discovery, blood donors were chosen randomly, often a relative or a coerced medical student in the vicinity. However, an Austrian physician named Karl Landsteiner, who was studying agglutination reactions, made a remarkable yet simple discovery. Now first, a note of clarification. Agglutination means the clumping together in suspension of antigen-bearing cells in the presence of specific antibodies. However, this is early on in the study of the immune system, and so these were called agglutinins. Landsteiner performed an experiment with his own blood and that of five co-workers. Serum, which is blood without the cells, from each person was tested against the cells of every other subject and their own cells. He found three types of subjects which he labeled A, B, and C. For example, serum from group A people, agglutinated cells from group B people, B from A, and so forth. Group C serum agglutinated cells from both A and B, but could not be agglutinated by any sera. This group later became O, and the A, B, O blood types were discovered. Now, by chance, no one in the study had AB blood, and that was left to a student of his to discover. 
Nonetheless, Landsteiner's landmark paper in 1901 entitled Agglutination Phenomena of Normal Human Blood, which described this study, led to him being awarded the Nobel Prize in 1930. And one last fun fact about Landsteiner. You know how we talk about positive and negative in blood types? He discovered that too, along with his colleague Alexander Wiener, in 1937. This is called the RH blood group system. Any guesses where that RH comes from? They thought this antigen that they had discovered was similar to that found on the red blood cells of rhesus macaque monkeys. So the RH stands for rhesus. The discovery that calcium was critical to blood clotting and that clotting could be prevented by binding the calcium with sodium citrate, and the discovery that blood can be stored for days and even weeks if glucose is provided, allowed blood to be donated and preserved without clotting, led to the birth of blood banks. This brought transfusions, so important in the development of so many surgical procedures, into routine use. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.